You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we talk with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson. Today, I'm going to explore the intersection of cybersecurity and national security, and also the weaponization of cyber attacks. And I'm so excited to be joined by the Honorable Sue Gordon. Sue is one of the world's leading intelligence and cybersecurity experts. And until recently, Sue was the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence. She was the United States' second highest intelligence post, and she also served as Deputy Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where she made digital transformation a top priority. Sue spent nearly 30 years at the CIA and was involved in the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound, and she capped her time there as a senior cyber advisor to the director of the agency. And in full disclosure, I want to mention that Sue is currently an advisor here at Microsoft. Sue, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks, Anne. I'm uh, delighted to be here, uh, to be chatting with you. I love the things you're doing. Uh, Let's go. So I wanted to talk a little bit about things like theft of biometric data or attacks on critical infrastructure and also the ongoing attempts to interfere in American elections. When you think about the risk profile of an entire country, a country the size and scale of the U.S., it's it's a huge concept for many to grasp. So where do you even begin when you're thinking about narrowing down and defining cyber threats to the U.S.? And what do you consider the most vulnerable things right now? Listen, this is a digital world, um, and every aspect of human interest is ultimately going to be affected through the digital environment. So anything that people want to do, they're going to be doing digitally. And it's not saying that there's not a physical component to it because geography still matters, ownership matters, but this is a digital world. And um, so if you think about three big bins of adversarial, I'll call it adversarial activity, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be affected digitally. The actions of our adversaries from influence that you mentioned in elections, we ought to talk about that a little bit more, to intelligence gathering, to undermining democracies, to disruption of critical infrastructure, to war fighting, to moving into new domains like space. All of it's going to go through the digital environment. It's going to look like cyber. But it's not just that. Competition is going to be affected through the digital environment. And you see it already, the theft and the acquisition of other people's technical advance. And then finally, crime. I would love it if we didn't have crime. Crime's going to be affected through the digital environment. And what's so compelling about the environment is that it is cheap and it allows almost any aspiration to be achieved on grand scale. I think the greatest threat right now is that misuse of the digital environment uh, could undermine our trust in our communications and the belief that we have that what we're seeing is true. And for free and open societies, that is absolutely devastating because the alternative is to lock it down. So we can go anywhere from there, but that's how I see it. It's here to stay. It's the way people do things, and then it's us up to figure out how we have an advantage 
as we have had advantage for the course of history. So it's, and I think you're spot on. People spend an awful lot of time talking about, you know, um, external influence or spend an awful lot of time talking about um, what, you know, what we characterize as nation state attacks. But I wonder if, if the greatest harm we're doing um, to ourselves, right, is via, you know, um, coordinated disinformation, right? And maybe some of that is external. But if you're thinking about um, breaking down the trust of a country that is actually right. takes pride in our First Amendment rights of free speech, right? If, once you start breaking that down, it, it's easy to break down other things. Is that is that kind of the point you were making? I want to make sure I'm... I, well, I'm I think, it. well, I think that's right. I think one is just... Um, if you think about stopping malicious cyber activity, it isn't just cyber activity itself, but it is national human interest being affected through that domain. So how you stop it isn't just technically, it also is how do you dissuade the behavior? And the problem that I see is that sometimes when we talk about countering cyber attacks, we want to go to closing our solutions, and that plays in the hands of totalitarian regimes. That's their solution. So I think, I think my point is, one, it's across every aspect of what we do, so we got to have multidisciplinary defenses. And then the second is, it's not just a governmental thing. It's all aspect of you know, personal life, and then how do we manage that? Yeah, and I think that makes I, I think that makes a lot of sense. When you think about it, though, we see a lot of um, cyber attacks by state actors, right? Frequently in the headlines, they mm-hmm. get they get the most press. They're, they seem to be the folks that, that they get the most interest, right? Um, there was a denial of service attack that disrupted inter- internet service in Hong Kong and Iran last year, and of course, Microsoft right. researchers found out the 2019 Iranian hackers carried out a password spraying attack on thousands of orgs, but. How much success are our security agencies actually having in identifying those attacks early, identifying those attackers, and making certain that that the government and the corporations are aligned in in defending the various assets? First things first, I think we have advantages that we don't talk about in terms of countering those threats. We have increasingly policies that are going to allow us to cross some of those boundaries that we were loath to cross before. And I think we have increasingly uh, global reach um, because we are uh, using our allies and our partners much more effectively. Um, I think it's an uphill battle to stop people with purposeful intent. I think we've done three or four things in the past five years that have been transformative. One is, we'll talk more about public-private partnership, but I think we have had remarkable success between the government and the private sector sharing both data that we have and opportunity that we have to defend against threats. I think we've done a good job in the past three or four years being much more transparent about the threats that we face. Um, Everything from the 2016 intelligence community assessment that said Russia was trying to interfere uh, to increasingly public statements about software vulnerabilities that really, and I think you'd agree, and seven years ago, we wouldn't have considered making any of that public. And what happens when you make it public is you start get increasing the space for people to find defense. I think we've made huge pushes on cyber hygiene, although we can certainly do better 
and better over time. And I think from a policy perspective, we have recognized that you can't just fight cyber in cyber. You have to do some cross-domain work. So more aggressive policy, more aggressive use of law enforcement, more aggressive use of naming and shaming. I think we've had some successes, uh, but it's an uphill, it's an up, it's an uphill no, there's battle. There's no doubt, and I recognize there's things you can't talk about, so I think our audience would appreciate that. That I do think that we're increasingly going to be on the threshold of using two advantages um, that we have. Um, one in artificial intelligence, and I know this is something that you've talked about, Anne, and that is Artificial intelligence just isn't, in, just isn't the technical means and learning we can apply to cyber defense, but it's also the mindset that, we, that the people who are developing those algorithms have uh, in terms of deploying them. I think we have an advantage there. And even though I can't say that we have advantage in numbers of people with technical talent, the technical talent that we have in this space now are really quite thoughtful um, and experts. So I think we have some coming advantages as well. I think we do also. And I also think we have an advantage when you think about the role that tech companies can play along with the government. And I'm curious, you know, where we draw that line, right? Microsoft won a recent court decision to take control of 50 web domains used by North Korean hackers. Um, and I think you might be familiar with that case. But when yes. do you think it's proper for corporations and government to interact and and how do you think that should work out? And, and we can use the situation as an example, right, as some guidance um, and just your point of view. So where I started in our conversation um, leads us to the world that, you know, 90% of the threat surface that our attackers are going to go against are not government controlled. So while I think government has the same responsibility as always had to uh, keep America and our interests safe, um, provide the kind of investment we need to advance um, defenses and to be responsible for the common good. I think the fact that the threat surfaces are increasingly not in our control and the decision makers are increasingly in the private sector means that you're going to have to share this responsibility. Um, when you think about how you do that, um, I think you have to think through is um, what's the domain being attacked, what's the vehicle being used, um, what kind of reach can the partners have, and what kind of opportunity and capability can be deployed against the threat. But two massive caveats. Number one is it really needs to be kind of a best athlete approach. And that is if the interest is primarily private, and if the actor is primarily private, then you have to go against it with that part of your arsenal. But you cannot make the company be an agent of the U.S. government. So the trick here is how do you use the combination for national security, big and big S, but how do you allow the distinction between government and the private sector to exist as well. We're all on the same team, but we do have different roles, responsibilities, and it is important that the government allows the companies to protect their ability to operate globally 
and be trusted by their partners. I think that's really fair. And I also, I, I want to take that to a little bit different of a place, which is I want to talk about offensive security. And I want to talk about it from a non-government standpoint. And, and I'm going to be careful in my words, but but I, I wanted to make a point and then get your your reaction to it. Okay. I'm um, in. When, and like I said, non-government offensive security. So when you think right. about private companies, I have a lot of concern about their ability and their capability, um, as well as their understanding of targets and their use of offensive security um, as a means of deterrence, because I I just don't know that. And it it, it leads a little into that conversation about potential state actors also. So do you think, I have a fundamental opinion that I'm not entirely convinced that private companies have a sophisticated and mature enough security program. And let me just say not all, because I'll I'll need that caveat there, but that they could accurately launch offensive security and get it right with the right targets and not cause further harm is my perspective. But I would love to hear your perspective. Um, wow, we could have started here and just had a whole conversation <laughs> on this one. So we've been through the years when um, the digital environment was the Wild West and everyone was out there conducting their view of right simultaneously. Um, and it didn't, it didn't work. The fratricide was remarkable. So to your point, does every non-governmental entity have enough insight and wherewithal to effectively engage cyber insurance outside the boundaries of their organization? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, so a couple, couple approaches we're going to have to take, right? Who, how are we going to make sure that all the threat surfaces are protected? Some of those companies that are critical but don't have the wherewithal of the installed base How do we make sure that they have the confidence that what they're putting into place is going to stop it? And then who are those people? What is that consortium that can actually be part of the actors and the persistent deterrence? And I don't don't think we know the answer to that fully, but I think that's one of the things that an ICU doing as a thought leader, and even above that, Microsoft in general and Satya and Brad have been really articulate on the issue of social responsibility. I think this is one of them. And so how do you both have the actors be the ones that can act and the people who are as part in part of the uh, ecosystem confident that they're being protected, even if they're not the ones that are taking care of their own interests? I think there are some things that are coming um, that we can imagine. One of the things we don't do right now is we still do pretty localized defense, right? We're getting better and better about sharing amongst each other the signatures of attack, but defense is still disproportionately local. And sharing what the attack information is with each other is not something that we do. So let's, let's imagine election security. All the way down to the locality, none of those localities have the ability, even if they can protect themselves, there's no way that they can adjudicate what's coming in to actively act against them on their own. But what if we were to develop the ability for all the attacks against any of those localities to be shared just in signature 
so that we can understand what's happening across the whole fabric. I think that's one of the ways that we'll get to protect some of the smaller ones. But does everyone have the wherewithal to act up or, uh, offensively in order to provide defense? Nope, they don't. So my bigger concern about all of this is, look, because I see the maturity program of a lot of companies, right, and, and organizations, and I, I, I wonder, so, so I'm going to start at the bottom, right? I, you know, SMBs and, and even the mid-tier companies are doing their best, right? They're, they're running a business. They're, they're taking the, the steps they can take, but they tend, to, they tend not to have the funds or the resources, the assets to do everything they need to do even to secure their business day-to-day, which is why we're seeing so many ransomware attacks on particular sectors, right? Because it's, it's yep. just an easy place to go. Then you get into corporations the size of Microsoft, and we think of, as you said, a lot about social responsibility and what is our role and how do we actually um, handle that role. And Brad said something over in Davos um, a couple weeks ago that I'm not going to quote as elegantly, but I thought it was really important what he said, which is, you know, if you're the provider of tech, you need to be responsible for what you're providing. What are you putting out there, right, in the ecosystem? Yep. And he was talking more specifically, I think, about AI. But I, I do think that from a cybersecurity standpoint, this collaboration between the public and private sector and bringing the best that you can bring to, to bear, regardless of where people are, right? Whether, you know, you're a government employee or a Microsoft employee or a player of another tech company or a non-tech company. I think we need to have some group of, um, I, I was reminded of, um, and I'll give you the example because I think it'll, it'll resonate with you. That when there's when there's a when there's a FEMA type natural disaster, there's a whole group of volunteers that they get you know brought into service, right? And there are folks that have been training for that. Should we have that kind of capability between public and private sector for cyber response or even for cyber type exercises, tabletop exercises that we're running in large companies to make sure they're operationally resilient? You know, should we model that type of program that I, that into cybersecurity that we pretty much have a lot of sense? So I agree with you. Now we've got two of us on, as part of that commission. Uh, a couple of things. One, I think I think actually we're starting to have that already. Um, there are things that DHS uh, under Chris Krebs and SUSE have done that have been the starting of that. When we know that there's an external threat um, with the Iranian activities of the past fall, they were, and we believe that there was an increased risk of cyber threats. There were calls that anyone could call in to have the best of the wisdom we have. And I think those are the nascent activities that will start that. You know, how does everyone know what they're a part of a network? Second thing is we're about to have the Cyber Solarian Report. I think it's coming out on March 11th. A group of industry and government leaders that were trying to replicate the model that led to the, our approach to Soviet deterrence in, back in the Cold War of what we can do against cyber. I am hopeful that they will have five or six big ideas about how we can actually build the governmental focus, the network that allows the public and private engagement. And then the third piece is how do we reach to all the parts of the ecosystem that don't even know that they're part of this fabric to include them that there's some modicum of security. Because as you just, as you press into the future and you start thinking about 5G and IoT and all the ways in, all the people who are providing that capability have got to be part of this. I completely agree. And I'm actually going to have Chris on the podcast in a couple of weeks so I can uh, start there. Tell me he's got a good start, but don't screw up. <laughs> he's he's a good man. He's got a, he's, he's, his head and heart are in the right place, definitely. To further that, you know, we talk a lot about, um, I want to get your one last opinion from you um, about something, because we talk a lot about skilling, right? And one of the 
things that I had um, had a conversation, um, and again, it's another ongoing activity that um, the government and private sector have already started, but um, which is skilling National Guard uh, drills on the weekends related to cybersecurity yep. for folks that are actually technology professionals during the week. Yep. I love it. Um, I think that's a great approach. I think we could um, not just take National Guardsmen, but former, you know, the veterans that are coming out of military service, I think they're a natural cadre of folks that, that can be used. Um, the, the one thing I'd, I'd love it if we do is if, as we pursue new educational approaches to increase uh, the foundational workforce, that we don't do the kind of social sciences sciences even if the whole point of my pitch is there are technical things we need to do to protect the network but there are ways that we need to think about what's happening to us that will allow us to know how we go after that but how do we look at the patterns of activity and get the people who know what the intention of the actors are to be able to see um, what's happening before it does is we don't really know what massing at the border and cyberspace looks like. We are getting better and better at responding to attacks. But I think we need to get some of that critical thinking in to be able to identify patterns before they manifest. And that's where I think the whole how far can our reach of our sensing network go will play in. I think understanding the motives of the of the attackers, and I, I mean beyond things that are probably fairly obvious, and really uh, applying that to the, the psychology of the attacks as opposed to just the technical yep. the attacks. And other thing for transitioning military, I, I wanted to just give a little plug to, I have a um, the global incident response team at Microsoft works for me, and almost 50% of them were transitioning military. And the reason that, you know, they're the folks that get on a plane and fly out to see customers when they've yep. been Know, compromised. And the reason that works so well is they didn't necessarily have to come in with, with computer skilling, but they know how to work on a team. They know how to work together in a time of crisis. You know, those customers are really um, negatively impacted. So having them on the ground, they know how to maintain the calm and they know how to do an investigation and we can teach them computer skilling. So I think transitioning military, and we actually have a program, uh, the Microsoft uh, MSSA program, where we're training um, transitioning military members in cyber skilling. I think that's much more eloquently said than I was trying to, and that is, it is technical, but there are lots of skills that can be applied to this discipline that I think will make a huge difference in terms of people understanding both how to deal with someone who's a victim, but also how to talk with non-technical leaders of entities so that they understand what's really at stake when they go to protect our shared interests. Absolutely. So let me ask you one last fun question. Okay. Um, are you, are you going to tell me what you use for two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication? Um, no, but I will tell you that I do both. Um, and on the password management, I tend to use um, the free open um, uh, software uh, more because I like the transparency it allows me. And absolutely anyone doesn't do two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication really doesn't understand um, what's at stake here. And then the last thing I do is, from my time in the intelligence community, I was always worried about losing everything or losing the important things. So those are the two things that I really look to protect personally about where I put my information. How do I keep from losing everything I have? And how do I keep from losing the one or two things that 
are really unique to who I am. And I think that that makes perfect sense. And Sue, I really, really appreciate you making the time to join me. I know you're joining me on the road and this was an incredible conversation. So I, I thank you for joining me and uh, hope we get to connect very soon. Well, let's make sure, make sure it happens. I'd love to join in anything you're trying to do. Excellent. Have a fantastic day. Thanks a lot, Ann. Sue Gordon brings just a completely different dimension to a conversation. And as I think about the um, Afternoon Cyber Tea um, podcast, I want to make sure we're not always focused on technologists, but we're actually focused on folks that are bringing a policy perspective um, to the conversation or just even, as you know, we've had folks in the past that have brought, you know, the human psychological element. So Sue definitely rounds out our guests list. I think the most important things organizations and individuals can take away from the episode that I did with Sue is that there is a partnership between the public and private sector and governments and organizations are working together, not just to keep organizations safe, but to think about citizen safety when it comes to cyber attacks. And that should give everyone a sense of confidence. And for our listeners, thank you for joining again on Afternoon Cyber Tea. And I look forward to you listening to our next uh, podcast. Take care. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.